It's February 18th, 2009. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Stephen D. Armand, who is a professor in the Department of Pathology and the Institute for Neurodegenerative Disease at UCSF School of Medicine, where he works on the pathogenesis of neurodegeneration and prion diseases. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. Around the room, we have Charles Wilson. Hi. Carlos Palladini. Present. Gary Galfo. Hello. And George Perry. Present. Stephen, could you first briefly define neurodegenerative diseases for us, how they present clinically, just briefly, and what they have in common from a pathological point of view? Neurodegeneration, it, it really defines what it is. These are diseases of nerve cells, and uh, nerve cells degenerate, dysfunction and degenerate. They sometimes don't even degenerate, but the dysfunction itself is enough to cause a, a lot of clinical signs. But ultimately, they usually degenerate, and they often have uh, certain neuropathological characteristics, which has defined them all. And uh, these today, those characteristics are defined by proteins. Each, I don't know of any of the neurodegenerative diseases any neurodegenerative disease in which a protein or an abnormality hasn't been defined, unless you know, George, uh, of one. But Alzheimer's has the A-beta peptide and the tau protein. Uh, uh, Parkinson's, uh, uh, the classic Parkinson's disease has uh, synuclein abnormalities. Uh, The frontotemporal dementia, which is the third most common of the neurodegenerative diseases, after Alzheimer's and, and Parkinson's disease, has tau protein abnormalities and uh, now TDP43 abnormalities. Uh, the uh, uh, Huntington's disease has the abnormalities of Huntington pro- protein. All of these spinocerebellar ataxias have a variety of proteins which have been called a taxin 1, a taxin 2, depending on the type of disease. Then there's Friedreich's ataxia, which has frataxin. And uh, so they've named just about every every protein. I'm trying to think again of one of a, a major category of neurodegeneration, which doesn't have a protein identified as a part of it. So neurodegenerative diseases are diseases in which neurons degenerate. Uh, glia can sometimes get involved, that has astrocytes and oligodendrocytes, but it's primarily recognized as a disease of the neuron, and that, and for that reason you get uh, clinical, the clinical signs are those of dementia, motor disease, that is of uh, inability to use your voluntary actions, uh, or combinations uh, of those ataxias and a variety of things. Uh, uh, and today, we know that those are all associated with specific protein degenerations. Carlos. So it seems like the neurodegenerations is just a, a, a description of, of bad things that can happen to the brain, and, and we associate these with different proteins. But do they have any kind of common link and, and a common mechanism whereby we can say that there may be some kind of... Um, same source that uh, that is just expressed in different ways depending on which protein is affected or what part of the brain is affected. I would begin with the first uh, first part of that. This is uh, neurodegeneration. Degeneration is almost a blanket term. 
it it really means a, a disease in which specific protein abnormalities occur, which focus on degeneration of the neuron. Uh, I guess you could call uh, an ischemic necrosis, a stroke, uh, a hypoxic state with no oxygen flow to the brain as a neurodegenerative disease because neurons die, and some, in some cases selective neurons die. But I think that that doesn't get incorporated into neurodegeneration as such. There are other diseases such as multiple sclerosis that some of those investigators like to think of their disease also as a, as a neurodegenerative disease where the myelin uh, degenerates around the axon. But most, as a general rule, neurodegeneration still really uh, confines itself to those specific diseases in which a, an abnormality occurs that's of a, and now of a protein that selectively knocks out uh, neurons. Now, the other question, is there a common, uh, a common theme to all of them? Perhaps the most common theme is they're all age-related. So something happens with age that makes these proteins uh, behave abnormally. And this is true of, uh, of all of these diseases. There are familial forms of most of them, and in some cases, only familial forms produce the disease, such as Huntington's disease. But of Alzheimer's, uh, uh, Parkinson's disease, frontotemporal dementias, uh, prion disease, uh, all of those have a sporadic occurrence as well as a dominantly inherited occurrence. And in the dominantly inherited, the only connection there that brings them all together is these occur a little earlier than the, the senile state after the age of 50. Um, is there anything else that would tie them together? George, you, you, can you help me with this? You've, stu <laughs> you've studied things like Alzheimer's longer than I have. No, I think it's, a, it's difficult to sort of picture what the connection is between all of them. I mean, one of the other pieces is that they all appear to have a selective neuronal death. It isn't random, like Steve is mentioning, point. is about that it appears to be transsynaptic. I don't think there's a complete agreement on that, but the, the selectivity that why do you have brain, certain substantial nigra neurons die during Parkinson's or the hippocampus begin? Is it some properties or is it due to a place in the brain where infectious agents are entering? Is the degeneration always apoptotic? That would be a common thing. For, for Alzheimer's disease, it's probably not apoptotic, mm -hmm. although that's what the literature says. You actually don't see apoptotic type changes. Now, for prions, I don't know the answer. No, it's the same thing. We don't see apoptotic neurons. Uh, in fact, sometimes it's thought of as one of those uh, agrosome-like devices that kind of eats away on the inside of the, uh, of the cell body. Autophagic. Autophagic. Uh, for an Alzheimer's disease, all the neurons that are affected show major autophagic-type changes uh, involving mostly mitochondria. But other types of proteolytic pathways appears to be involved, probably involving the proteasome also. I think it's very important, though, uh, what George said, is the, uh, is the selective vulnerability of neuron populations. The 
the, the obvious one is uh, Parkinson's. That seems to like to take out substantia nigra, but it takes out a lot of other neurons. Mm-hmm. Locus ceruleus is lost. There are neurons in the dorsally ferrant nucleus of the vagus. And, and involving lots of dopaminergic. That's right. For things that you guys are quite interested in. And uh, uh, Alzheimer's tends to be more general to the entire brain, but why does it selectively start in the medial temporal lobe? Prion disease, depending on the type of disorder or where it starts in the brain, will take out different populations, interconnected populations, and it'll look different than uh, Alzheimer's. Frontotemporal dementias focus on the frontal lobe and the temporal lobe and often will produce behavioral and language problems, but no memory loss of the type seen with Alzheimer's. So uh, there is that, that's a very important point that these do have selectively vulnerable populations for these neurodegenerations. Gary? I have a uh, kind of a, a comparative evolutionary question. Ah, good one. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned that most of these neurodegenerative diseases occur with aging. So do you find them with other animals? And secondly, do you think with respect to evolution, is it because we're living longer and we're experiencing things that uh, perhaps humans haven't evolved to yet? That's kind of a, a very broad question. Uh, yes, these all seem to be uh, in humans age-related. And are they? there are age-related changes similar to this in, uh, in animals. Uh, neurofibrillary tangles and amyloid plaques of the type seen in Alzheimer's are seen in older polar bears, as I understand. Oh, Linda Cork. <laughs> That's right. Oh, yes, Linda. And uh, in uh, and some dogs, as I understand, is well, I can't Not remember the other tangles. Name. They have plaques. They get plaques. They get plaques. So the abnormality, though, of a- APP processing leading to A beta plaques does occur, but in older populations. And again, why older? And uh, there's been a whole series of hypotheses about what triggers Alzheimer's uh, from uh, uh, oxygen radicals accumulating with age. Uh, Oh, I don't know. That's the best one. That's the best one, right? (laughs) But there's a lot of things that happen to neurons as you get older. They fill up with things like lipofuscin. Whereas, uh, in fact, the, the cortex, if you look at gross cortex of a young person, the gray matter is actually gray. But when you look at an older person, it's really kind of dark, a darker color because of all the yellow of the lipofuscin plus the gray gives it a, a much different uh, look. Uh, so does that contribute in, uh, in any ways? Or, there's a lot of things going on in the neuron that we don't know about. I always thought of... Lee Hood, who's doing all this system biology where he wants to map the total genomic expression in every individual so that you could predict what your uh, uh, what diseases they might have and how treatments could be tailored to them. It seems to me they should work with these groups that are looking at uh, mildly mild cognitive decline patients that we know from the data suggests that those people who are just have very slight abnormalities that are only detectable with detailed testing, within five to ten years they they develop Alzheimer's disease. And so it would be nice to know what's different about them 
compared to those that don't uh, de that don't become uh, demented at all. And perhaps that's the population they should look at and that he could look at. And would there be any genetic expression differences? Um, there, there's a paper that just appeared. Right? I was interviewed for it for the Alzheimer Forum today, looking at expression in animals with aging. And they found these gene quite big changes during the aging process. And there's been a lot of precedents for that, inflammatory molecules and other things. But the other thing I, I, I talked to somebody about already was the, the nun's uh, story, because that is totally, absolutely fascinating to me. I don't know if this group knows no, about the nun study. No, we don't know about that. Yeah. So the, the Catholic nuns in the Chicago and Midwest agreed to be followed for many years with psychological and cognitive testing and that they would donate their brains for detailed neuropathological analysis at the end. And so as expected, those many of those that were very bright and showed no decline in their 90s and up to 100, their brain looked absolutely normal. And then, as would be predicted, many of them that had high levels of neuritic plaques and neurofibrillary tangles of those seen in Alzheimer's disease were demented, totally demented. But then there was a population with as many plaques and tangles who were totally normal. So, uh, uh, and this goes back to something that Bob Terry had written about many years ago, that it isn't the plaque and tangle count that's important, but the number of synapses. So he and Eliza Maslia had looked at synapse concentrations and the patients who were demented, there was a direct correlation between the synaptophysin presynaptic bouton count and the degree of dementia, not the amount of plaques and tangles. So that raises another possibility that it's not just the aging. It, aging may trigger some of the abnormalities, but there's something inherent in individuals that, that separates them out. So that if the A-beta abnormalities in Alzheimer's is knocking off uh, synapses, it looks like in some individuals they can immediately replace it so they never become demented. It, uh, so it adds another, another dimension to this whole thing. It isn't as simple as just age and age-related problems. There's something about the genetics. The other thing about these nuns, the nuns who didn't get demented could read before they went to grammar school and uh, they, when they wrote in their diary, which they kept all their life, it was very complex sentences with multiple clauses, whereas the ones that did become demented didn't learn to read until afterwards, and uh, they wrote very simple sentences. And then there's that other data that people with higher levels of education they have a delayed onset of Alzheimer's and, and perhaps don't even get it or a lesser uh, disease. So I, I don't know if that answered the question. <laughs> it answered a lot of questions. It's, a lot, it's very complicated. Right. Apparently I need to go back to school. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's why I didn't get my first job till I was 43. <laughs> in, the, in the case of the nuns, um, it was never the case that um, one developed dementia but had absolutely no plaques or tangles. Is that correct? Uh, I don't know the answer to that because that wasn't the remarkable part. But okay. some of them could not have 
several of them probably didn't have plaques and tangles because one of the major causes of dementia over the age of 60 is multiple infarcts, so multiple strokes. So I, there's most likely that uh, if there were such patients, they would, have, they would have that. But then there are other causes of dementia that appear later on, like frontotemporal dementias, which don't have the plaques and tangles of, uh, of uh, Alzheimer's disease. So there, there probably were people who were demented but didn't have Alzheimer's change. So your work with uh, Stanley Prusiner on scrapies and its related human disorder, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, solidly formed the basis for PRP accumulation as the basis of these diseases. So it seems like this really monumentally changed the course of your career, which till that point had been focused on astrocyte and glial tumor pathology. How did that, I guess now 20-plus year collaboration um, and your abrupt research shift come about? Well, I was, it all begins with Hans Kretschmar. He was our first uh, fellow, and he's now head of the Institute for Neurodegenerative Disease in Germany. But Hans, uh, Hans and I were working on brain tumors and doing some, I was, I, I was teaching him some basic uh, lab uh, studies, and uh, Stan came down and asked, I, I needed a neuropathologist to help him, and the only person down there that could do it was me. And uh, Dick Davis was not a uh, research neuropathologist. So uh, I agreed to help him. And in those days, I went in the lab and actually did the... He had an antibody, and he wanted a neuropathologist to look at it. We, uh, we, uh, I went in the lab and actually did the immunohistochemistry with, with Hans. And uh, first field we looked into, this was in the hamster scrapie model that develops... People thought had amyloid plaques, but they weren't sure about it. We looked down at the first field, and all of those plaques were brightly stained with the prion protein antibody. And I turned to Hans and I said, we're dropping all of our uh, tumor research to work on this. And the, I said, the reason is we have the reagent that nobody else in the world has. We can do anything we want to for the next five to ten years, and we'll get it published. Which turned out to be true, and we made major <laughs> breakthroughs at that time because there was no knowledge, total, no knowledge at all. And Alzheimer's disease proteins had not even been discovered at that time. So we were making advances at, at that time nobody else could. And there was another reason, because I said nobody else would believe, believe this work because they didn't like Stan and the prion hypothesis. So they will never, they will never compete with us. And that turned out to be true. Finally, when we got enough data out, then they started competing with us. But it was that simple. I could see that that was the future, and that we had we had the the foot in the door on that future. So now, how are prions implicated in, in other neurodegenerative pathologies? Well, we don't know whether it is or not. But there are features of all the neurodegenerative diseases that are similar to what we see in prion disease. The, uh, for instance, the, uh, the one feature that we can see in virtually all of the other neurodegenerative diseases is the progressive march of the disease from one, one neuron population to the next, to the next, to the next, along interconnecting neuroanatomical pathways. This is true for... Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, frontotemporal dementias, and as I understand, uh, 
with uh, Huntington's disease also. And uh, so that means that the disease has to jump from one synapse to another somehow. And we have an inkling, we have a better understanding of how that happens in prion disease, but no concept of how it occurs in Alzheimer's disease. But it, it's funny the way they be, they're doing the same thing that we can show happening very rapidly in prion disease. The only difference between, the main difference between prion disease and these others is a prion disease, the interaction of the normal protein with the abnormal is so rapid a conversion to the abnormal form. The normal form gets converted very rapidly, very efficiently, and it's protease resistant, so it just keeps accumulating in different uh, neuronal organelles. Uh, and so that the we've seen people die within one to two months of the first signs of, of disease, and the average is about uh, five to six months, whereas Alzheimer's and Parkinson's are we, we think of in terms of 10 to 15 to 20 years. So it's a very slow progression and very inefficient. Uh, now, does that mean they're really different? could mean that. So but there are a number of secondary effects. So the, the prion protein causes a number of different, the, the virulent isoform causes a number of different things to happen, like changes in membrane fluidity and um, changes in intracellular calcium um, flux, I guess, uh, stores, release, that kind of thing. Um, what, what are the other things that happen, and what could, how could you account for the change in temporal progression based on these effects, which seem to be based on the prion protein being there? and being there in abnormal amounts. Is it the amount? Is it the strain of the prion protein? Is it the neuronal population? Probably. Probably all three of those. And uh, so th this, is, uh, uh, this is something that I, I try to talk to Stan about quite a bit, that as the protein accumulates in, or, uh, in the compartments in the nerve cell, in the plasma membrane, just loads up the plasma membrane, gets into endosomes, lysosomes, and probably other places, but that's where we can see it and measure it. Uh, it really disrupts a lot of the function of the membrane, and we've only touched the surface on looking at those uh, sorts of events. Uh, but the one we became most recently interested in was the notch signaling pathway, uh, because dendritic atrophy and degeneration that is the part of the, the uh, receiving system from the synapses from, of one neuron, those, they degenerate tremendously so that you end up with maybe one-tenth the amount of dendritic tree apparatus in, that can function. So that's millions and millions of connections that are lost. And that that occurs very rapidly. So PRP scrapey, the abnormal protein, starts to accumulate in the brain region and we can measure the loss of dendrites within a week to two weeks. And when we look at the notch signaling pathway, the notch intracellular domain, which is the part that gets cleaved by the gamma secretase system, which turns off genes, ultimately goes into the nucleus, shuts down genes that maintain the dendrites, it goes up almost parallel within a day of the accumulation of PRP scrapie. So somehow the, protein, the accumulation of the protein in the membrane 
is causing the premature truncation of that molecule and cleaving of it by gamma secretase. So we get this abnormal boost uh, or increase in the amount of, NIC, of NICD. And notch, the notch pathway is important in that it, it activation of it actually decreases pro-neuronal um, Well, it does, yeah, what it processes. does originally, and here, have, thankfully, Gary's here, I will tell you what I know about it, and then he can correct me. Uh, the development of neurons, there are multiple factors that are causing the growth of neurons, the sending of axons, the development of the dendritic tree. But at some point, you can't have that keep going. There has to be a break put on that. Uh, in fact, in notch one knockout mice, you get pretty grotesque-looking neurons that are just going beyond where they should go. Most often, the dendritic trees are kind of in their own space uh, next to each other so that the inputs can be fairly clean. Uh, but that has to be stopped so that the overgrowth doesn't occur. So notch one kicks in uh, during d different stages of development to prune back the uh, dendrites. But notch one is involved with numerous things, with the immune system. It determines how many T cells of different types are made. It also controls uh, neoplastic events so that it can, it can prevent some, uh, uh, some cancers from uh, taking off. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's involved in many things, but in the nervous system where we're interested, it's, it really works on this one system. But I learned this only from the developmental neurobiologists, which is why we looked at it. Right. And uh, they singled it out as one of the key controllers of dendrite size. <coughs> so now this, is, this presents the opportunity for all kinds of exciting therapeutic strategies and real translational uh, opportunities here. So can you tell us about some of the realities of that and how, how that's progressing? Yeah, well, a similar thing occurs in in Alzheimer's disease, the notch one system is activated. Dendritic atrophy is common in, in Alzheimer's. Uh, uh, so Alzheimer's, uh, the, uh, the pharmaceutical companies, knowing that and uh, knowing that A-beta is formed by activation of or truncating of the uh, abnormal truncating of the APP protein, leaving this, <coughs> this um, amyloidogenic, pathogenic uh, fragment of the called A-beta, then it goes through the gamma secretase system also. They developed all these drugs called gamma secretase inhibitors that stop the gamma secretase system from working. It does very well. It's potent at doing that sort of thing. However, it has horrible effects on the GI tract and on the immune system, and it causes little cancers to grow here and there, and uh, certainly in Mice, they lose all their fur, become nude mice, essentially. Uh, and uh, so they, the drug itself will, will kill the patient. So you can't treat a patient for more than a couple of months with it. You can't treat the patient for 15 to 20 years with that, with that medication. Uh, so we used that in our animal models and found that we could virtually <coughs> cure the disease. We could stop the formation of prion protein, stop dendritic atrophy, and uh, but again, we killed the animals because the, the, of the toxicity. But it, it's a, a, it's a clue, though, as to what what kind of approaches you may need to use to treat these diseases. 
And right now we think it's a multi-drug approach because we, we added quinacrine for various reasons to the gamma secretase. And that, that seemed to help, uh, help the gamma secretase inhibitor do its job. And the gamma secretase inhibitor helped quinacrine clear some of the PRP scrapie out of the brain, as was predicted from other studies in Prusner's lab. But it's not the whole story. Uh, because we think you have to add another component to uh, to this uh, system. Charlie. So in, in, in at least several of the neurodegenerative disorders, there's effects on transcription factors, and usually not just one, but transcription factors being all interconnected with each other, they end up affecting each other, and there's a gigantic cascade of transcription changes. And, it seems to me that you know so a lot of the progress that gets made, we discover here is the defect. So the simplest one, probably Huntington's disease, where we say, okay, this expanded repeat is the cause. It is absolutely the cause of the disease. When it's not there, there's no disease. And so now we say, what can we do about that? And well, let's find out what that expanded repeat does. Well, it affects this, you know, 200 different signaling pathways in the brain. So uh, let's build. Uh, a therapeutic plan based on countering its effect on all 200 of those things. And that turns out to be practically impossible. Uh, <laughs> if, if the minute you've touched one of them, now there's 201 because that one alters something else. So are we, is this a good strategy? I mean, are we going to succeed by looking downstream of that primary defect and trying to reverse its effects? Or or is that hopeless for us to do? <laughs> the, uh, oh yeah, yeah, this is this is the age of hope. <laughs> so we've been told. I'd like to have hope. <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, but this is uh, this is an extremely good question, and I've, uh, and I, I don't know the answer, of course. So the Stan Prusner has a different approach to the to these. Uh, Disorders, and I have to admit, we got into un trying to treat with gamma secretase inhibitor and quinacrine because we were trying to test a hypothesis about the cause of dendritic atrophy. Uh, we didn't know we were going to stop the disease cold in its in uh, in its place. So we started 50 days, and the disease remains at 50 days, and uh, and the, and the disease is confined mostly to one brain region which is amazing, the region where we started the disease by inoculation with prions. So uh, uh, we think maybe that, uh, that one's going to have to treat some of the downstream effects. So we were able to stop the very early dendritic atrophy. So it means a lot of synapses remain intact and, and the animal should function fairly well. Now we just have to get past that uh, time of, uh, of uh, the toxicity where you, you kill the animal. You've cured the animal, but they die. Which, um, and the only thing I can think of right now is because we've confined the disease to very focal places, we can now come in with a different approach where we shut down the primary cause which is the formation of the abnormal exactly. protein. That was my next question. Is there any utility for that? I mean, we don't know much about, I guess, that reaction that happens that turns the native into the, the scrapies form of the protein. 
Is there any instance that you can imagine that we would be needing that virulent form in our in, in the brain? I mean, can't we just? Isn't that the very beginning of prion diseases? Absolutely. That's where you, that's, that's the target. That's that's the main. That's what we think, and all of our data suggests that all the degeneration we see, the changes in membranes, all follow from the formation of this exponential amount of PRP scrapie. So that has to be stopped. The problem today with gene therapies is you can't inject into the into the subcutaneous tissue, intraperitoneally, or even in the brain, and get the gene therapy to all neurons and shut down the, the disease. We do know from conditional knockout mice that you can start the disease, and then you could give uh, the Cree sort of a system where you shut down PRP scrapie, PRPC formation and all neurons at the same time. Those animals do quite well. So that's the so they stop producing the native form. They sometime start making after the PRPC so then they can't make PRP scrapie. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that that's been a, a very nice uh, example that we can do that. Uh, the problem we have is we're gonna patients are always going to start very far down the road. And uh, so we have to, my, our feeling is you have to stop everything as quickly as you can and then get, uh, try to do focal gene therapy to those areas where you know PRP scrapie still is located and try to stop any further form of PRP scrapie formation. So then that's that leads to the next question, which is, are there I mean, these, these patients always present after a certain amount of progression, and that's it's pretty late usually that you see these people come in. Yeah. So is, are there any useful in vitro or in vivo assays at this stage? And is, there, is that something that... The best thing we have right now is uh, MRI scans. And these are so diffusion-weighted MRI scans and FLARE. I don't know what FLARE stands for. But uh, they look at diffusion of water and any area of the, of the cortex... Or, or deep gray matter in which diffusion is restricted, they light up brightly. We recently published a paper in which we, com- we had an MRI scan done on an individual about 14 days before he died. And there was a massive amount of, of, of hyperintensity on one side of the brain, but not on the other. So we were able to compare the pathology and PRP scrapie levels in, in both sides. And we found that the hyperintensities correlate best with, with vacuolar change, which makes sense. Those little vacuoles probably to prevent diffusion, diffusion in the brain itself, and with PRP scrapie levels. So there's something, maybe PRP scrapie also reduces the ability of, of water to diffuse properly. Uh, so at least those hyperintensities tell us where PRP scrapie is. So I, I want to sort of get back to this thinking sort of upstream. So one one upstream thing to try to do is to stop expression of the native protein that might have bad side effects. We don't know exactly we what don't think so. That would be great if it didn't. The, the next step down is the interaction between the proteins that causes the transformation of the native uh, protein into mm-hmm. uh, the, the prion right. version. So isn't it possible that there might be a small molecule that could interfere with that protein-protein interaction? Is there right. any notion that there would be anything lost in doing that? Is the, the native protein probably doesn't interact by that 
why those binding sites are in that way with anything else. No, that's absolutely true. In fact, uh, that's been various types of things like that have been tested. One is uh, antibodies and for, uh, pieces of antibodies that could bind to PRPC and prevent its interaction with PRP scrapie. So, but it's again, the problem with that has been to get it diffused throughout the brain and also preventing uh, immune responses to that, uh, those kinds of molecules. Uh, so both of those uh, complications have stopped the use of that at this stage. But it is a reasonable way. Then there are other molecules that have been uh, thought to interfere with that, uh, things called dendromeres, and uh, uh, Congo red dye is thought oh. to bind and do that. And uh, but they That'd all be an are, easy one to administer. Except it's toxic. Oh. <laughs> Too bad. That's right. <laughs> and you glow nice and pink. Uh -huh. And if you were in polarized light, you, you could fluoresce green. <laughs> that would just be a good sign. <laughs> a good sign. <laughs> but so those are, those, that is a definitely important approach. And Stan's hope is that by screening 350,000 molecules, as he's doing right now. Because that could basically be searched for in vitro. Exactly. In the, in the original sense. Exactly. It doesn't even have to be a living cell. To exactly. So he's, that's what he's trying to do. And, but he has a bigger budget than we do. <laughs> <laughs> so the goal then is just to look at lots of, it isn't, so one, one thing I could imagine is you'd make a computer model of how the protein interacts with the prion and then figure out a designer molecule to slip in that spot. Or the other way is just to go through everything uh, but the kitchen sink, trying everything that anybody can get their hands on. Uh, what's the what's the best approach? Well, he's doing both of those. So he there. One of the problems is we don't know the ab, the actual structure of the abnormal protein in enough detail to say what where the nooks and crannies are for actually blocking it. And even PRPC is not fully understand in its native state in the in the the cell. Uh, so. Uh, but they, they are approaching that. He has a team of uh, molecular pharmacologists who are doing these docking sort of studies with the hope they can find something that would interfere with the interaction of the two. Uh, the second one, by screening lots of drugs, is he has, a, uh, he has a pharmacologist who's doing this work for him, and they're screening, as I say, 250,000 right now and with the hope that they're going to find something. And indeed, they might. Uh, ours, is, ours began as a pathophysiology experiment, and we stumbled onto something that may be useful, and uh, which used to be called the rational approach to drug development. So why not but, say a little bit about that rational approach? <laughs> well, the rational approach had to do with the idea that you knew the function. You, knew, you understood a function well enough and you could find a drug that would interfere with a specific function of the molecule and uh, change the course of the disease that way. And so we thought, once we discovered these effects with the gamma secretase inhibitor and dendritic atrophy, uh, we thought that, and this is working through a, a system, through the gamma secretase system, which we know is, is involved with the dendritic atrophy. 
So that is a rational approach. It's based on science and our understanding of the pathophysiology. Whereas the in the old days, but 15 years ago, if we proposed to do this study that Stan's doing, we would they would say to us, that's just a hunting expedition. You haven't got any data. You, you haven't proven anything. And at the end of five years and and five million dollars, you will you may have nothing, and which is true, and you couldn't argue against that. I've noticed that people have quit saying that as much since the pharma, <laughs> the big pharma companies have taken this general approach to doing things. That's right. They're doing it. That's so right. The, the fishing expedition or the shotgun approach has been uh, resuscitated. Right. And Gina race. Uh -huh. That's true. All but, sorts of unbiased, called unbiased or fishing expedition <laughs> approaches. The and, but unbiased I think sounds, but isn't that just sounds like it's uh, isn't that just because the technology is so better, much yeah. <laughs> more tractable and cheaper to do than to actually uh, commit intellectual endeavor to it? I mean, it's, it's all of this has been to some degree technology driven as well, right? The, the big uh, pharmaceutical approach of. Uh, Screening two hundred fifty thousand is very cost costly, and requires far more techs and people working continuously with high throughput screening methods, and uh, and detailed mechanisms to measure effects so that they're sure they're getting a proper effect. It's it's really expensive. Whereas, so I would think uh, it's the order of millions and millions of dollars, where right now the the old-fashioned approach that we we're stuck with in most of our academic science is following individual pathways, which are the order of hundreds, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and are doable by a relatively small lab. Uh, but uh, Stan must have twenty people, twenty or thirty people working on on his program, whereas I have three working on our program. <clears throat> I don't know. I think uh, I think we've learned something, and uh, it's useful. But Stan, we're, in fact, we're in a race to, to see if we can beat Stan, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Stephen Dermont, for being with us. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Show. Thanks,